1: Our guest today is a representative of the Allergy and Asthma Network, and we're going to be talking about um, Legionnaire's disease. We've had outbreaks in Flint, Michigan, um, in New York, um, and we're going to talk about what causes Legionnaire's disease and some of the recent guidelines that the Center for Disease Control has just put out to fight and to help prevent Legionnaire's disease. And so I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr. Per. Uh, Pervi Parikh uh, from the Allergy and Asthma Network. Thrilled to have you on the show, Dr. Parikh. Welcome.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Um, I'd like to just begin by having you explain the mission and the function of the Allergy and Asthma Network so that our listeners who might not be familiar with the organization can kind of understand um, what you do and what the organization is all about. Um,
2: right, so the Allergy and Asthma um, Network is a leading nonprofit um, for patients and their families uh, who suffer from life-threatening allergies or asthma, or actually any allergies or asthma for, for that matter, and it's uh, patients of all ages and their caregivers or family members, and it's the advocacy group that helps create legislation and bring awareness of these conditions um, that these patients suffer from.
1: Excellent. And now let's get into the topic of today's show, and that's Legionnaire's disease. Um, help us understand exactly what it is and how it affects the human body.
2: Right. So um, Legionnaire's disease is caused uh, by a bacteria that's called Legionella. And often it lives in any place where there is water. So it can be in cooling tanks and fountains, hot tubs. And people who get Legionnaire's disease is when um, you inhale this bacteria and it uh, turns into a pneumonia. Now, it doesn't happen to everybody that inhales it, but certain people are at risk, um, particularly if they have other medical conditions or their immune system is compromised. And in these people, it can be very severe and, unfortunately, even deadly.
1: Now, when you say that it's inhaled, you know, normally we think of water as a liquid. So how does that happen?
2: So it can happen um, anywhere where there's a chance for you to breathe in water. So often it can happen through cooling systems, so air conditioning vents in hot tubs, even though you're not, uh, you don't feel like you're inhaling water, but there's always a mist, you know, or even when you're in the shower, um, you don't realize, that you are inhaling some of the mist from the steam. So uh, there are many different ways that you can inhale Inhale the water, even through water fountains. And then even when you're drinking water, sometimes if accidentally all of us have done it, you choke on the water, some of it goes down the wrong pipe, as we say. And if it does go mm-hmm. down your windpipe or your breathing tube, then effectively you inhale that even while drinking it.
1: Now, does it always turn into a pneumonia, or are there other effects on the body?
2: Right. So, it doesn't always turn into a pneumonia. Um, The pneumonia is one of the more severe forms of the disease. There is a a milder form of the disease um, that's also been named Pontiac fever, where you can get kind of flu-like symptoms. So, you feel exactly like you do when you have a bad cold or the flu, or you can get fevers, muscle aches, and feel kind of run down for a few days. So, those are the, the most common ways. And then some people are lucky in which it doesn't infect them in that way and they don't get very sick from it. But if you do get sick, it's usually either the pneumonia or the the flu-like symptoms.
1: Now, is Legionnaire's disease communicable or is it something that you have to come into direct contact with the affected water supply in order to contract it?
2: All right. So the good news is that it's not communicable, so we can't pass it to one another but um, yes, you do have to come in contact with the water supply, but it's still, even though we don't pass it from one person to the other, it can affect a lot of people, especially if everybody is using the same water supply or, you know, in, in either a building or a hospital or a city.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, you know, for those who were in Flint or in New York where these outbreaks happened, what? Um, how did they get diagnosed? I mean, did they have symptoms and go in and say, I think I've got Legionnaire's disease? Or, you know, was there some, how do we diagnose these cases when it's maybe the the first
2: or second case in an area? Right, and that's actually the tough thing because since it isn't an extremely common illness, often it's missed. And so the diagnosis, unfortunately, sometimes will take time. But the common symptoms are cough, shortness of breath, muscle aches, headache, high fever. So some of these patients that came in, they were treated for pneumonia, and then when they didn't get better from traditional treatments, um, luckily they were screened for Legionnaire's disease, and they were found to have it. And usually it's through a urine test. Um, But, of course, there's other things that can support the diagnosis, such as blood tests and chest X-rays. But the urine test is kind of the screening test that you've been infected, but the thing is, um, you know, people have to have it on their, have a high suspicion of radio, on their radar for it because it, it can be missed. And if you're not getting better from traditional treatments of pneumonia, then we should think about it because Legionnaire's does require a different type of antibiotic. Well, let's talk about that.
1: What is the treatment for Legionnaire's disease?
2: So there, there are a, um, a couple antibiotics that treat Legionnaire's disease. And that's why it's important to identify if you do have pneumonia. What exactly is causing the pneumonia? Because depending on which antibio- depending on which uh, bacteria you have, that's the right antibiotic that we use. So for Legionella, um, there's a class of medications called quinolones. Uh, so things such as cipro that you may have heard of, ciprofloxacin, levofloxacin. Those mm-hmm. are medications that are used to treat Legionnaires, and then other things, such is clarithromycin. But it's very important to um, know exactly what it is, because the antibiotic you're receiving may not be treating it.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, what is the mortality rate for Legionnaires? Is it you know, pretty deadly or not so much?
2: So it's about 10%, so that means about 10, 1 in 10 people who are infected um, can die from it. Wow. That's kind of high.
1: I mean, it seems to me anyway. I mean, that seems like right. a, a you know, a pretty high mortality rate. Right, right. It can it can be very severe if, if someone is infected. And amongst those who are most at risk for succumbing to legionnaires' disease, you know, tell us about the makeup of that group. What you know, are there any common characteristics or is it just, you know, it could be anybody? that could succumb to this disease?
2: Right. So the people most at risk are um, elderly people. Actually, anyone, the CDC is now saying anyone over age of 50, uh, Mm -hmm. people who are smokers, either current or former smokers, because as a smoker, you're more at risk for any lung infection. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the same goes for anyone who has a chronic lung disease. So asthma patients, such as the ones that I treat, As an asthma specialist, are at high risk uh, patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or COPD, and then anyone who has a weakened immune system that won't help them clear the disease. So uh, things such as cancer, but even diabetes or kidney failure can be all um, signs of weakened immune system. So, and then other patients that have to take medications to suppress their immune systems. A lot of people are on immune suppressive medications, such as a lot of our cancer patients and patients with autoimmune diseases or transplant patients, all of these patients are at um, much higher risk of getting a more severe form of the disease.
1: What kinds of places um, are most likely to have a problem with Legionella bacteria? I mean, where are people most likely to contract Legionnaire's
2: disease? So, it can happen, uh, you know, again, any place where there's exposure to aerosolized uh, water and and any place that has, like, large cooling tanks, you know, because this is kind of like a petri dish for the bacteria to grow. Um, So, again, uh, public fountains can be a risk. Um, As I had mentioned before, certain hot tubs, pools. Things like that can be a risk. Um, Unfortunately, there have been some outbreaks in hospitals, and so they've taken extra precaution against that, especially because hospitals already have sick patients. So that's the last thing that you'd want them to be exposed to. Um, And then, I mean, any place where there's a large water supply is fair game, as as we saw in Flint, Michigan, or even in the Bronx. Um, So... Uh, you know, any place there's pooled water, water cooling systems, water tanks, hot tubs, pools, all are Mm -hmm. fair game unfortunately.
1: So, are we talking about large buildings, large structures like hotels and office buildings and things like that or, you know, is this possible in a residence?
2: Right, so usually it is um, large buildings but, you know, residences are also affected in that for in most Uh, Cities, water supplies are especially condensed and small cities or large cities. All the water supplies are usually coming from one place, one or two places. So um, any place can really be affected.
1: And is it primarily something that happens in a built structure or, you know, could it be something? I know that like an outdoor fountain might be one place, but, you know, if you're outdoors, is there a way to contract Legionnaire's
2: disease? Uh, you can still uh, contract it outdoors because the, the thing is, it's more what's in the water supply itself. And usually wherever the water supply is coming from may be that specific river or that cooling tank that has been infected with the bacteria. So, you know, if the bacteria is there, you're still at risk of inhaling it, even if you're outdoors. So, um, as I mentioned, if there is a place, where you can inhale it. You don't You don't have to be within an enclosed space, is what I'm trying to say. Because the bacteria right. is in that water supply. It can still affect you if you're sensitive to it.
1: So if you were swimming in a river that had it, you know, that it was present in, um, you know, you might be able to contract it in that way or something like that?
2: Yes, exactly. Or a pool or a hot tub or, you know, even if it's outdoors. Mm-hmm. How
1: often is the Legionella bacteria present in our nation's water supply? Is
2: is this a prevalent uh, bacteria? So the the Centers for Disease Control estimates that there's about five thousand cases per year, but this may be uh, inaccurate because I'm sure some may may never be diagnosed, and some you know you like I said you have to have a high index of suspicion, or um, there has to be the thought by whoever's treating you to um, screen for it. So 5,000 confirmed cases per year, but there actually might be more than that.
1: Um, But is there a way that, you know, we have water treatment plants and, you know, water service providers, um, are they keeping track of this? I mean, do we um, actively uh, test for and look for Legionella bacteria, you know, in our water treatment plants and what have you?
2: Right. So that's, I think, what we're trying to establish now is kind of a standard of care across, you know, all states and cities so that outbreaks don't occur. But um, up until now, you know, each location has their protocol for checking for it and um, making sure that there's no bacteria in their own cleaning systems. But there isn't, at least to my knowledge, a, a standard Yet. And I believe that after what happened in Flint, Michigan, the, the CDC is working on developing the guidelines. So, you know, everyone kind of ha- is held accountable to the same level. So, in other words,
1: we aren't really sure how prevalent it is in the United States. I mean, you know, we couldn't pull every water treatment plant or every, you know, water supplier uh, in, the, in the nation and know for sure that we were either clear or that it was present. Is that accurate? Right. Well,
2: we can. We, we can test for it. So, uh, And I think now it should be occurring more frequently after what's happened. So now mm-hmm. the CDC has encouraged um, all water suppliers and um, many big buildings and things to routinely screen for it and test for it so that this doesn't happen again. Um, usually they'll survey, but in general, you know, we know that there are at least 5,000 cases per year, and we're hoping that will go down now that there's more, um, you know, rigorous surveillance and testing.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, we we have to take a quick commercial break, but when we return, there's so much more we're going to talk about in terms of our nation's water supply and Legionnaire's disease, so don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this.
0: world For more information about Covanta energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation
3: starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to our wild world with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves.
1: welcome back to go green radio so glad that you could all join us and if you're just tuning in let me catch you up um, our guest today is dr. Per V Perik and she is with the allergy and asthma Network we're talking today about Legionnaire's disease um, how it's related to our nation's water supply and um, the infrastructure that we have and furthermore we'll be talking about the Center for Disease Control or the CDC's um, recent recommendations to help prevent Legionnaire's disease. Now, Dr. Parikh, we've all heard in the news about Flint, Michigan and their problems with lead in the water, but in addition to that situation, um, they also had an outbreak of Legionnaire's disease. Talk to us specifically about what happened in Flint.
2: Right. So, um, what had happened was in Flint, when the water supply had been changed uh, to Flint River, there was an outbreak of Legionnaire's disease. So, since many people in that city were now drinking water, using the same water to shower, and, and in their cooling tanks, etc., many of these citizens were breathing in um, the Legionnaire bacteria, and unfortunately, developing very serious disease, especially those that were at higher risk, which is elderly and immune compromised or, or those with any type of uh, lung ailment.
1: And were they contracting it in their homes, uh, showers, and what have you, or was there um, a specific place identified where most of the patients were gathered in order to contract Legionnaires?
2: So an outbreak, um, as for Legionnaires, as defined by the CDC, is they say that anyone any more than just two cases counts as an outbreak. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was unfortunately everyone was at risk because the, it was coming from the main water supply. So it was at home, it was in the shower, it was at work, presumably. Um, unfortunately, and a bit scary, but even in certain hospitals or nursing homes where there's already patients that are at risk, um, that was also a, an issue. Mm-hmm.
1: And how many people were impacted in Flint? What was the, what was the count there?
2: I don't have the exact count, but I believe it was in the thousands that were affected.
1: Wow. Now, talk to us about the outbreak of Legionnaire's disease in New York. Um, when did that happen? How was it contracted? And how many people were impacted there?
2: All right. So that occurred um, about a year and a half ago, especially rampant in the South Bronx. But mm-hmm. all of New York City and surrounding areas were affected, and it was actually ironic because the South Bronx, that area, has some of the most severe (laughs) asthmatics, in not only in New York, but even in the country. So it was an especially dangerous population to be hit by Legionnaires' disease because uh, anyone with any type of lung disease is at higher risk, especially uh, those who suffer from allergies or asthma.
1: Um, why is it that folks in that particular region have such a high instance of asthma rates? I mean, what's going on there?
2: Right. So there's a, a lot of different factors that contribute to it. Um, some are uh, socioeconomic; um, they have, you know, less access to medical care. It's uh, more of an indigent, po- indigent population. Uh, the other issue too is uh, kind of part of allergies and asthma are genetic. So there's a very high population of um, Latin Americans, Puerto Ricans, and they, they've been shown to have a much, much higher incidence of severe asthma compared to other counterparts. So it's twofold. Um, and then the third is that being in a city and an industrial environment, they are, the air quality is not as good in, in that area as well. There's um, a lot of, proximity to highways and exhaust fumes. So it's kind of perfect storm of multiple factors.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Parikh, is Legionnaire's disease
2: 100% preventable? Well, you know, nothing nothing is 100%, but we can make it so that it's close to 100%. So um, more rigorous screenings and testing to make sure water supplies are not contaminated with Legionnaires' disease are definitely something that we can do to make it. the incidents go down um, much, much more uh, and prevent outbreaks. And then the other thing is also having very thorough cleaning processes of these uh, cooling tanks and any area where there's large pools of water that are stagnant, those are all prime places where Legionnaires can grow. So these areas should be screened more and also um, disinfected and cleaned more as well.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, who is ultimately responsible for keeping the public safe from Legionnaire's disease?
2: Right. So it is something that is reportable to the Department of Health of uh, each state. Um, The CDC also has recommendations that it gives, but now I have a feeling that legislation will be coming out to make You know, individual companies uh, more accountable because it varies so much from laws vary so much from state to state, and then even within a state, there are a lot of private companies that are responsible for the cooling tanks and the water supply. So, all of these companies have to be held accountable because you know thousands to millions of people can be affected.
1: Right? Because you know, I'm trying to imagine a a department of public health actually enforcing, um, you know, these recommendations <laughs> and, and right. it's, it's unfathomable really. Uh, there's not the, the manpower, there isn't the regulatory authority. Um, you know, what form of legislation do you think this might take that would actually have teeth, um, for whether it's a, a landlord for a, a you know a tenant building or a company right. who has employees
2: what would that look like right i th- i think it would probably come from the the level of where you know where the water supply is being held who is in charge of the cooling tanks. And it would even be helpful at the individual corporation level. There's a responsibility. I know in New York um, at Memorial Sloan Kettering, which is, you know, one of the uh, leading cancer hospital, they have actually very, very strict guidelines against Legionnaires because their patients are some of the sickest. And so of course they don't want their patients to be infected with it. So this is something specific that that hospital is doing, but, it may be that we have to hold everyone that accountable, you know, especially in high-risk areas, um, such as nursing homes, hospitals, and um, those companies that do regulate the water supply. Mm-hmm. Um, so right now there is no standard. So Sloan Kettering had some cases years ago, and then that's how they developed such a strict protocol. But now maybe that strict protocol needs to be enforced across the board and And you're right that it is more difficult to um, enforce multiple different uh, entities, but it's something that we have to hold people accountable to these guidelines because they can affect the public health of many. Right. I mean, do people
1: have legal recourse? In other words, you know, if you are renting an apartment or if you are working in a building, um, you know, where there's a facilities manager in charge of these, you know, cooling towers and what have you, and you contract Legionnaire's disease, do you have any legal recourse?
2: Currently, no, but I believe that now there will be because now as um, new guidelines come out, as new legislation comes out, um, you can argue that this may be negligent. You know? Previously, I'm, I'm not sure what there, if there even was any legal recourse, but I think as now the guidelines get more stringent, I, I would imagine so. Mm-hmm.
1: So now let's talk about the nitty-gritty. I mean, how do we know when Legionella bacteria is present in a building or in a water supply? How exactly do you test for it? Is it visible? I mean, how do we know it's there?
2: Right, so essentially um, scientists are, can take a sample of the water from any supply and you can test to see if the bacteria is present. So it's not visible, let's say, to the naked eye, but uh, through laboratory testing you can identify it just the same way that you can identify other bacteria, um, and then in people, usually we identify it through the urine. We have a urine test that sees if you've been infected with uh, the Legionella bacteria.
1: So if you want to be a responsible building owner, how often would you test for Legionella bacteria? I mean, um, is it monthly, weekly, daily? What's, what's the recommendation?
2: So the current recommendations, and I think they're being uh, updated is that at least every quarter uh, your water supply should be tested, so every two to three months. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know if they're planning on making it more stringent. Um, You know, it would make sense given all the recent cases. But, yeah, it should be definitely more often than once a year, you know. So usually every two to three months it is uh, indicated, and maybe more so in most places that have a higher-risk population. Mm -hmm. And I know,
1: you know, any time that there's even a hint of a regulation, you know, businesses will say, too expensive, you know, it's their automatic response. Is it expensive
2: to test for Legionella bacteria? So the testing itself um, is is not that expensive. The thing that may be expensive is then eradicating it, you know. So Mm -hmm. if you find, and I don't know the exact cost offhand, but um, some of the more strict guidelines and standards, of course, then will require you to buy new equipment and kind of overhaul your whole cooling tank system. So I'm sure that will be, is very expensive. So the testing per se may not be, but the, the consequences and the things that you have to do in order to maintain it, I'm sure, are, are very expensive.
1: Uh, is there preventative maintenance that would keep, you know, a system flushed out uh, in a building to the extent that Legionella bacteria just couldn't grow in, you know, in the building?
2: Right. So things that, um, especially in newer buildings, is easier to do, but um, because you don't have to kind of rehaul everything, but having the most up-to-date equipment, um, having a certain chlorinator pumped, like let's say in a hot tub that, frequently disinfect, um, and then also the changing in natural in treatment products. Um, there's certain disinfectants that you can use, newer ones that are more, um, you know, stringent and lethal against the Legionnaire bacteria itself, um, and then, you know, changes in water usage and the municipal water supply. All of that can be done as a preventative measure. And of Mm -hmm. course, the regular screening of the water supply to make sure there isn't any bacteria in the in the water itself.
1: If it's not in the public water supply, is it still possible for Legionella bacteria to build up in a building? If it's not, well,
2: usually, right? That's a good question. So usually, it should be coming from some type of water source because that's where the bacteria grows and multiplies. Mm-hmm. Um, but even if it's not in the current supply, if you have old pipes that have been exposed to water, you know, there's always a chance that it may grow within those pipes, you know, and mm-hmm. it may not be coming from whatever current water supply there is. But most of the outbreaks and most of the cases have been able to be traced back to a larger water supply. So it's pretty rare that there's just a spontaneous case in one building. It's usually gotcha. they're coming from either a cooling tank or a river or some already large body of water that's been infected. Gotcha.
1: gotcha. Well, we're going to take a quick commercial break, but there's so much more to discuss with Dr. Parikh, so don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this.
0: News. News. Opinion. Opinion. world for more information about covanta energy visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com
3: do the adventures of indiana jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession if so don't miss indiana jones myth reality and 21st century archaeology with dr joseph schuldenrein
1: welcome back to go green radio so glad that you could all tune in and if you're just joining us our guest today is Dr. Parikh, and she is with the Allergy and Asthma Network. You can check their website out at www.allergyasmanetwork.org. And uh, we're talking about Legionnaire's disease. This is kind of a hot topic because, um, you know, we've had some outbreaks in the country. As Dr. Parikh mentioned in an earlier segment, we get about 5,000 cases per year in the U.S., and that's what we know of. Um, it's viable that uh you know there are more cases than that that we just don't know about and what we're learning today is how our water system our water infrastructure is related to these outbreaks of Legionnaires disease and moreover what the Center for Disease Control the CDC has uh, recommended in terms of keeping us safe and preventing Legionnaires disease. So Dr. Parikh um If a building manager tests for Legionella bacteria and finds that it is in the building, what do they do?
2: So then they should report it to the Department of Health as well as the CDC as soon as possible because, uh, as I mentioned before, even two cases is considered an outbreak, and that way it can help prevent it from spreading to others.
1: And what do they do in the building? I mean, let's say you've got an office building and people are coming to work. Um, What do they do?
2: So, I mean, if there is um, confirmed Legionella in the water supply, the the first thing would be to want to report it, and then the appropriate, um, you know, health officials from the health department CDC would come in and try and investigate how far spread or even what the water source is, but immediately um, would recommend to stop using the water within the Mm -hmm. building, of course, because the more you use it, the more you're putting yourself and others at risk.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, and you know, there are going to be some sort of necessary uses of water, like flushing toilets and whatnot, but I'm wondering, um, can you even do that? I mean, is that a risk if you flush the toilet um, in a building that's got Legionella, is that even possible? without causing risk?
2: Right. Generally, you know, flushing the toilet should pose very little risk. But, again, I would avoid drinking it. I would avoid showering. Those are all ways that you can inhale it, you know, because the main route is inhalation. So um, those things I would avoid. And just to use it as minimally as possible because Mm -hmm. there's always um, a chance to inhale it. You know, even running the faucet, you know, if it's hot water especially, there's a chance you may inhale some steam droplets, so mm-hmm. um, as much if, as you can minimize
1: is best. You know, and I'm thinking about schools. Uh, you've got lots of you know students running around. Some of them, you know, small, and uh, m- many of them will have asthma. Would you have to vacate a school if Legionella bacteria ended up in one of those buildings?
2: Yes, I would assume so because you, you know, would not want to have all the children infected and as you mentioned, many of them do have asthma or allergies, so they're all at higher risk, um, not to mention other people that work in the school. So, probably that school would have to be shut down temporarily until was, the situation is under control.
1: And then, what would a building manager do in order to, I don't know, can you flush out uh, Legionella bacteria? How would they be sure that they could get that out of the building once they knew that it was present?
2: Right. So, at this point, you know, um, this, both the CDC and the Department of Health would recommend um, kind of a disinfectant, disinfecting protocol, and they'd have to kind of examine the infrastructure from the inside, because let's say it is a very old uh, building with old pipes, you know, some parts of it may have to be replaced altogether, and then make sure that the new equipment has the appropriate disinfectants in it, uh, the appropriate temperatures too, because at warmer temperatures, there's a higher risk of uh, Legionnaire's disease, so there's a lot of technical things that go into it, because uh, when water is warmer, or in humid environments, um, these disinfectants don't work as well. And ironically, those are also environments that the Legionnaires are more likely to grow. So mm-hmm. um, there's a lot that goes into it, temperature monitoring, equipment monitoring, uh, disinfecting.
1: Right. Now, you know, you mentioned that people who already have asthma are at higher risk for, you know, really severe Um, impacts Mm -hmm. and symptoms from Legionnaires' disease, but can Legionnaires cause asthma in people who've never had it before?
2: Uh, Yes, it can. So any type of infection in your lungs can set you up for asthma because uh, now your lung tissue has, in a way, been weakened. Um, There's inflammation there from the infection. So um, uh, many people develop asthma actually after a very bad pneumonia of any kind. It doesn't have to be Legionnaires. So yes, it it can go the other way too, and that it can cause uh, asthma and other long-term lung damage. Wow.
1: You know, let's talk about the CDC's new guidelines pertaining to Legionnaires. What are some of the key elements that they have come out with?
2: Right, so the the main elements are... um, one, having an actual infrastructure and equipment overhaul. Overall. So if you haven't replaced your coordinating pumps or pipes or, you know, any area that is holding large uh, stagnant bodies of water, the recommendation is to, you know, replace it, you know, with the newer equipment that's been um available to us in the last couple of years. The second thing, as I mentioned before, is that temperature is a big thing for um, Legionnaire's disease. So at higher temperatures, the disinfectants that are in the water system don't work as well, and that's the breeding ground for the bacteria. So any uh, water supply that has hot and cold uh, temperature mixing um, has to be extra stringent in monitoring it. and. Make sure that there is enough disinfectant uh, in those, especially the people with the the places, sorry, with the hotter um, water temperature. You have to make sure there's even more disinfectant in those areas. So it's kind of a multiple-step process and pretty much a full infrastructure overhaul. And then frequency is uh, should be increased too. So we should be checking for this more often as well. Mm-hmm. You can't just kind of sit back and <laughs> hope nothing happens. It has it's a constant um, screening process.
1: Mm-hmm. And does the CDC, you know, have recommendations about um, testing equipment or temperature testing devices? I mean, for building managers or companies who have never done this before, how specific is the CDC's guidance for
2: those types of issues? Right. So, on, on the website, they actually have a checklist um, mm-hmm. and a toolkit that kind of um, goes through a series of questions to see if how high-risk your building is. So, uh, basically, we'll ask things like the age of the building, how the water is distributed, how old the pipes are, and, you know, if, let's say, you're a higher-risk building, um, there are certain guidelines that you can refer to that can help you because, you know, you may or may not know what is necessary to protect your water structure and your building specifically. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a set of guidelines called the ASHRAE guidelines um, Mm -hmm. that help um, in risk management uh, for building water systems, and specifically they have guidelines that have now come out on Legionella, which is about, they're about a year old now, so those are kind of the most up-to-date guidelines for those who want to get more information.
1: I'm not sure if you would know this, Dr. Pareek, but you know I work with the U.S. Green Building Council, and we have you know guests from their organization on every so often. And they're the organization who has uh, that has really pushed for green building standards. And just recently, um, they have come out with a new standard that's not just about you know green buildings and, and, and sustainability materials, but the the uh, name of the guidance system or the rating system is called WELL. And it basically helps to create healthy buildings. And it's all mm-hmm. focused on, you know, the um, the building occupants and their health and well-being. Are these CDC guidelines or, you know, a Legionella bacteria uh, regimen, you know, monitoring regimen, is that part of the WELL um
2: Rating system? Do you know, or or should it be? Uh, but that that I don't know. I don't. I'm not familiar with the Wells rating system. I mean, it, it sounds like a, a great you know a great thing and a great idea, but I'm not sure how much overlap between the CDC guidelines and and theirs. Mm -hmm.
1: That might be something that, you know, I'm going to make a note to myself. (laughs) That might be a Mm -hmm. good follow-on show. We'll talk about that. Now, everybody who, you know, suffers from uh, these types of respiratory issues really trusts the allergy and asthma network. Um, Is your
2: organization supportive of the CDC's new guidelines? Uh, Yes, we are. Um, Anything that helps minimize the risk, You know, to our patient population, um, we're 100% supportive, and our organization is big on preventative therapies, you know, Um, similar to Legionnaires. uh, Unfortunately, there's one in about 10 people that die of asthma, even in our country, on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, anything that we can do to lower that incidence, we're definitely very supportive of. Now, do you think that
1: the CDC's new guidelines go far enough, or, you know, are there additional guidelines that you would recommend in new iterations of these guidelines, maybe coming from the World Health Organization, that you think should be incorporated?
2: All right. So, you know, it it always is a work in progress. You know, you never, unfortunately, you never, uh, you know get experience unless, until things tend to go wrong. I think mm-hmm. it's definitely a step in the right direction. And I know that the CDC has looked at it internationally as well at other uh, countries, uh, specifically in Europe and other places where they have had issues with outbreaks. So I know that they're taking that into account, but I think it's maybe too soon to know if it's, um, if they can be improved or not, you know? So definitely it's a step in the right direction by the feeling that this is something that is a work in progress and it will be constantly evolving as we see what works well and what doesn't. Absolutely.
1: We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we'll be talking about uh, more issues with Dr. Parikh and we'll be talking about how this pertains to everyday people and what we can do. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this.
0: For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts
3: with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss.
1: Welcome back to Go Radio. I'm so glad that you all tuned in, and I'm thrilled that we've had Dr. Parikh with us to talk about um, Legionnaire's disease, to talk about where it comes from, and the CDC's new guidelines to help prevent it. Um, but you know, the CDC guidelines specifically state that they're not meant for single-family dwellings or even small, multi-family dwellings. And so I'm wondering, Dr. Parikh, what can everyday people do to keep Legionnaires from impacting their own homes?
2: Uh hello. Yes, Dr. Pareek? Yes, yeah, so there's still sorry, there's the music was still going on so I could not I couldn't hear oh. your question. <laughs> no
1: problem. Um you know, we've been talking about the CDC's guidelines for um, right you know, for these, uh, you know, preventing Legionnaires. But the guidelines specifically state that they're not meant for single-family dwellings or even small multifamily dwellings. And I'm wondering what everyday people can do to keep Legionnaires from impacting their home.
2: Right. So, it's difficult because, you know, as we mentioned, usually most cases are traced back to a larger water source, you know, but... Simple things that you can do in your own home um, are just making sure that any areas that you have, like, such as swimming pools or hot tubs, um, that your the chlorinator is working. You know, a lot of times it's not working, and then the chlorine levels drop low, and you find out that, you know, and this could be an area where your family could be at risk. Um, there's not much that you can do for the water that's coming from the municipal supply, because... Um, Usually, they're the ones that monitor it, but at least in any large body of water that you have, uh, you know, easy enough to check chlorine levels, make sure your equipment is working, um, so that always reduces your risk of contracting anything, not just Legionnaires.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, according to the CDC website, uh, Legionnaires infections are most common in summer and early fall, and I'm wondering why that is, and um, maybe you can also give us some summer safety tips.
2: Right, so the reason being is that any um, warm, humid environment is more likely to grow Legionnaire's disease um, for multiple reasons. One, um, the bacteria happens to multiply more at that temperature, and that also at that temperature, a lot of our disinfectant systems, like the uh, chlorine in water, doesn't work as well. The disinfectants kind of uh, become weaker at higher temperatures, so it's even more important that during these months, um, more attention is paid uh, by those who are in charge of the water supply and as I mentioned, make sure your the chlorinator is working well in your swimming pool, um, and other areas in your home that may have large bodies of water, like fountains, um, hot tubs, all of those areas are our are prime targets. You know,
1: we talk a lot about infrastructure on Go Green Radio, and we talk about, you know, everything from green buildings to updating our nation's water and energy infrastructure. And, you know, we recognize that in order to become a more sustainable society, we need to invest in infrastructure upgrades. And I'm wondering, you know, in your view and in your experience, does outdated water infrastructure play a role in the risk of developing Legionnaires, or is it just more of a human error, and maintenance issue?
2: Uh, No, outdated infrastructure definitely plays a role, um, and that's why the CDC website uh, has great recommendations on how to know if you're one of those um, areas that may be at risk of having outdated infrastructure. There's a checklist you can go through um, because, again, a lot of old pipes, the old pumps, you know, they... After repeated use, they don't work as well. So, your water may not be disinfecting as well as it was 20, 30 years ago. So, all of these things are important. And then, again, um, having up-to-date devices to monitor the temperature for the reasons that we mentioned earlier as well to make sure that there's not um, risks, higher risks for this happening. So, um, definitely, it has to be kind of a full overhaul um, Mm -hmm. within the system
1: and you know a lot of local government agencies do not have the funding to overhaul or upgrade their infrastructure and you know we see that in glaring examples like Flint but the truth is um, you know the the longer you've had civilization in your state or your you know municipality, Oftentimes, the older your infrastructure is. I mean, on the East Coast, you've got water infrastructure, um, pipes and, and tubes and things that have been there for a lot longer than the lifespan of those, you know, that equipment was meant to be there. Um, mm-hmm. You know what? What do you think the chances are that we'll actually be able to afford the kind of upgrades that would keep us safe from things like Legionnaires' disease?
2: All right. Well, you know, money is always an issue in any any policy change, you know, because there never is enough of it. Um, but I think with more cases coming to the light and in the media, the chances will improve significantly. Um, unfortunately, you know, uh, people had to suffer in order for it to raise awareness, and some uh, unfortunately lost their lives. But so I think these are lessons, and hopefully because of these lessons, that the chances will improve. Um, And Mm -hmm. with increased exposure, especially from the media, I think it may put some pressure on government entities to maybe allocate more funds um, in these preventative measures. Because it's far less costly than having a public health outbreak Mm -hmm. um, to prevent it from happening in the first place.
1: Well, and I think what moves public policymakers, of course... It's voters. <laughs> and the You're more right. voters care, uh, the more public policymakers care. And uh, up to now, infrastructure upgrades you know, really hasn't been a sexy political topic, you know, enough to move people to actually say, you know, I'm not going to vote for anybody who doesn't talk about infrastructure. And so um, hopefully we can move the needle um uh, you know, to get voters excited about these kinds of expenditures. You know, Dr. Parikh, with all the recent terror attacks, I can't help but wonder, because we've talked about how, uh, you know, our water supply might be a terrorist target. Is Legionella mm-hmm. bacteria something that could be used by somebody with nefarious intentions?
2: So, I mean, the good news is it's, it's not as, you know, it's not a communicable disease, so people can't pass it from person to person, so it's not, um, you know, as rampant as some other things that might be used in um, bioterrorism. But And I also don't want to <laughs> cause panic, but it, it is it is possible because, you know, outbreaks do, as we've seen in Flint and Bronx, outbreaks do happen. Um, the good news is that, you know, with more uh, stringent testing and, um, you know, checking of coronation and disinfectants, the... Uh, risk of it is far less um, for it to, you know, be widespread rapidly. So the nice thing is that if we do screen more and put these regulations in check, probably it can be nipped in the bud early with very few people affected.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, besides coming on Go Green Radio, and we're so glad that you did, what are some of the ways that the Allergy and Asthma Network um, works to spread the word about preventing Legionnaire's disease?
2: Right, so we educate um, our patients and their families, especially because these are the people that are at higher risk of contracting the disease. That you know, not to take any warning sign lightly. You know, and seek medical attention, and you know, be an advocate for yourself. But then also we work uh, to educate others too, especially those that uh, work with the Department of Health and those that are involved in municipal water supplies to educate them that, you know, we have a large at-risk population. Um, There's 25 million asthmatics of all ages, adults and children in our country, and that's just asthma alone. You know, there's people with diabetes, cancer, you name it, all are at risk. So we also work to um, educate um, policymakers uh, lawmakers, uh, kind of at, at every level, and the general population as well, so they can protect themselves and their loved ones. Fantastic. You know, in the
1: final moments that we have left on the show, what message would you like to leave with our listeners?
2: Uh, I guess the, the main message is is that, you know, if you do feel ill and either the flu-like symptoms or trouble breathing, cough. Uh, and you are someone that is at higher risk um that you're over fifty or a smoker, you have a lung issue or cancer or even diabetes or, or and this happens out of your family members you know uh, don't take it lightly and uh seek medical attention because often uh it does take some time to make the diagnosis so um you know definitely sooner is better, so don't take things lightly if you are in that high risk group.
1: Dr. Parikh, thank you so much for joining us. This was a fascinating and enlightening show. I know that our listeners appreciate it. I also want to thank our listeners for tuning in. We're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. And until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green.